Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Claire Ridgway, creator of The Amberlynn Files, founder of the Tudor Society, and also the author of several history books, including The Fall of Amberlynn, A Countdown, and George Boleyn, Tudor Poet, Courtier and Diplomat, which I co-authored with Claire Cherry. I'm here to talk about the fall of Amberlynn, Queen Amberlynn, a woman who was the second wife and queen consort of Henry VIII from 1533, to the 19th of May 1536, when she was executed for treason. Anne Boleyn's fall in 1536, and who is ultimately to blame for it, is a subject that divides historians, and I think it always will, unless we learn how to travel back in time to 1536 and we manage to overhear some key conversations, or some more historical documents come to light. The trouble with Anne Boleyn's fall is that we can argue different points of view and back them up with historical evidence. We can't say that any one historian is right or wrong, as long as they've based their theory on the primary sources, that is, the evidence from 1536. It's so frustrating, but it's also very intriguing. If only Anne Boleyn or Henry VIII had left detailed diaries, we can live in hope, I guess. So what are the main theories regarding Anne Boleyn's fall and who was responsible for it? Well, let's start with the most unpopular theory, which is that Anne was guilty of at least some of the charges laid against her in May 1536. That is to say, committing adultery and incest and plotting with her lovers to kill her husband the king and to marry one of her lovers after his death. Professor George Bernard has written several journal articles on Anne's fall, and in 2010 he published his views in a book called Anne Boleyn Fatal Attractions. In that book he concludes that It remains my own hunch that Anne had indeed committed adultery with Norris, probably with Smeaton, possibly with Weston, and was then the victim of the most appalling bad luck when the Countess of Worcester, one of her trusted ladies, contrived in a moment of irritation with her brother 
to trigger the devastating chain of events that led inexorably to Anne's downfall. He supported his view with a primary source, a poem written by Lancelot de Carle, secretary to the French ambassador, who was in England in May 1536. Now, de Carle wrote of an argument between the Countess of Worcester and her brother Anthony Brown. Brown was admonishing his sister for what he considered her immoral lifestyle, her loose living, her poor reputation, when the Countess, who was obviously irritated by his claims, defended herself by calling attention to the crimes of others, i.e. her mistress, the Queen. According to de Carle in his poem, the Countess said that Brown could hear the full story through Mark, that is Mark Smeaton, and that he could tell him about how the Queen and her brother often had carnal intimacy in her own bed. Brown then shared this information with those close to the King. Now this sounds like solid evidence. It comes from a poem by someone who was there until you bear in mind that de Carle and his master, the French ambassador, would have been being fed information from the crown. Ambassadors at the court at that time would be hearing what Cromwell wanted them to hear. Then there's the idea that Anne Boleyn's fall was due to her behaviour rather than any actual crime. Greg Walker believes that it was courtly love gone too far, courtly love gone wrong, that was to blame for Anne's fall and condemnation, that it was unguarded speech and gossip rather than adultery or incest that led to her execution. Now Walker quotes Anne's aunt, Lady Boleyn, who served Anne in the tower in those last days, as saying, Such desire as you have had to such tales has brought you to this. Now the tradition of courtly love was a popular one in the European courts at the time, and one that Anne would have been very familiar with, having served Margaret of Austria and Claude of France. It was a great chivalric game. It was all about wooing and flirtation, rather than sex. A courtier would choose a mistress to woo with poems, songs and gifts. And when it came to a queen, male courtiers would flirt with her, flatter her, sigh over her, praise her beauty, and so on. They were supposed to act like they were a little in love with her. After all, she was the most important woman around. Now, on the last weekend of April 1536, Anne Boleyn had two encounters with male courtiers, men she was friends with and who were part of her circle. She reprimanded Mark Smeaton, a court musician, saying, you may not look to have me speak to you as I should do to a nobleman because you be an inferior person. And then, in telling off Sir Henry Norris for taking too long to marry her cousin, Mad Shelton, she accused him of being in love with her instead and she spoke recklessly of the king's death. You look for dead men's shoes, for if aught came to the king but good, you would look to have me. Now in courtly love, the courtier was meant to proposition the lady and flatter the lady. But in this case, Anne was the aggressor and she'd spoken of the king's death as well. She'd turned the courtly love tradition on its head 
and had also spoken words which could be construed as treason. Anne appeared to have realised this straight away and ordered Norris to go to her almoner and swear an oath about her good character. It appears that Anne was rash, that she'd made a mistake, but nothing she said to Smeaton or Norris can be taken as evidence that she was involved with them sexually. She was reprimanding them after all. Now these conversations took place on the 29th of April 1536, whereas the commissions of Oya and Terminer, which tried Smeaton, Norris, Weston and Brereton, were set up on the 24th of April. Now I don't believe that Anne's fall had anything to do with these conversations. These commissions had already been set up. A popular theory is that Thomas Cromwell, Henry VIII's right-hand man, plotted to remove the Queen and that he framed her. Those that put forward this theory believe that Anne Boleyn was a thorn in Cromwell's side, that she was a threat to him and that it got to the stage where Cromwell feared that it was her head or his. Cromwell and the Queen had had a disagreement over the proceeds from the dissolution of the monasteries. Anne believed that the money should be used for educational and charitable causes, whereas Cromwell was giving the money to the king. Anne obviously felt very strongly about this, as she caused her almoner, John Skip, to preach a sermon on the Old Testament story of Queen Esther. Historian Eric Ives writes that this was Anne's call to courtiers and counsellors alike to change the advice they were giving the king and to reject the lure of personal gain. It was a very public attack on Cromwell, the king's chief adviser, and Anne also asked one of her chaplains, Hugh Latimer, to preach in front of the king. Latimer preached on the parable of the vineyard, a fitting text when you consider the first fruits and taxes that the monasteries had to pay. Latimer and Anne, through him, were saying that instead of dissolving the monasteries, the king could convert the abbeys and priories to places of study and good letters and to the continual relief of the poor. Could Anne's stance and her public attack on his counsel to the king have made Cromwell fear for his life? I don't think so. Cromwell had showed no fear of Anne back in 1535, reportedly shrugging off the idea that Anne wanted to see his head off his shoulders by saying, I trust so much on my master that I fancy she cannot do me any harm. So why would he fear her now in April 1536 when the king was flirting with Jane Seymour and Anne appeared to be losing her influence with the king? Cromwell may have taken credit for Anne's fall, saying to Eustace Chapuy that it was he who, in consequence of the disappointment and anger he'd felt on hearing the king's answer to me on the third day of Easter, had planned and brought about the whole affair. But Cromwell also said that he had been authorised and commissioned by the king to prosecute and bring to an end the mistress's trial. So this sounds like Cromwell was simply being a good servant that his plotting was the result of orders from the king and not of his own volition. Would Cromwell have really dared to plot against the queen? She was the king's wife, even if she may have been losing a bit of her influence. She was an anointed queen, 
and if she won back her influence with the king, then Cromwell's head would be off. Getting rid of Anne Boleyn for his master did make sense, though. By bringing the Queen down, Cromwell was removing an obstacle to his plans for the monasteries and the wealth obtained from them. He was removing an obstacle to his foreign policy plans. By removing Anne, who was pro-French, he could negotiate with the empire. Cromwell could also get rid of some powerful and influential men who were affecting his own standing with the king, one of whom, William Brereton, was an obstacle to his planned reforms in the Welsh borders. He could also keep the Catholic faction at court and the Seymour family happy. The pragmatic Cromwell knew that he should ally himself with those on the rise rather than Anne Boleyn who seemed to be losing her favour with the king. I see Anne Boleyn's fall as a perfect storm, a combination of factors that made the Queen vulnerable. Henry VIII had turned England upside down to marry Anne. He had struggled for six or seven years to get his first marriage to Catherine of Aragon annulled. He'd broken with Rome, the Church of Rome, the Pope. He'd had to execute his former friend and adviser, Sir Thomas More. His popularity with his people had been affected. All this just for a daughter and two lost babies. After Anne's miscarriage in January 1536, Henry seems to have become convinced that God would not give him sons by Anne, and also another woman had caught his eye. Catherine of Aragon's death in January 1536 meant that the king could set aside Anne without being forced to return to his first wife. Henry could be a free man. He could move on to another woman, a fertile woman who might give him living sons. What had been attractive in Anne Boleyn at the start of their relationship, her strength of character, her intelligence, her wit, her feisty nature, the way that she stood up to the king and argued with him, their relationship of sunshine and storms, their relationship of passion, it all became rather tiring for Henry. Oh, to have a docile and submissive wife who didn't upset his chief minister, he must have thought. Oh, to have a wife that everyone loved. Oh, to have him and talk about him. And there was the meek and mild Jane Seymour just waiting in the wings. Combine Henry VIII's obsession with having a son, his impatience, his disillusion with his wife, Anne's miscarriage, Catherine of Aragon's death, Cromwell and Anne having a disagreement, Jane Seymour catching the king's eye, and then the Seymours and the Catholic faction manipulating the king by telling Jane to tell the king that his second wife was unpopular with his people. And you have quite a heady mix. Henry must have felt vulnerable and anxious about not having a son to secure the Tudor line. He must have felt that his second marriage was just like his first. He must have begun doubting its legitimacy in God's eyes. Anne was causing trouble, so why not get rid of her? But this time, the troublesome wife had to be got rid of permanently. She couldn't just be banished from court to be a thorn in his side. 
she had to completely go. That's why I think that Henry VIII was ultimately responsible for Anne's fall. Others played their part. Cromwell made his master's wishes come true, and Jane Seymour, her brothers and the Catholic faction preyed on the paranoid king. And perhaps Anne was naive in believing that she was safe and secure, for not recognising her vulnerability and acting accordingly. I don't know. But I do think that Henry being behind the coup makes sense. The king's behaviour in May 1536 is very interesting. In 1541, when he was informed that there had been some claims made about his fifth wife, Catherine Howard's sexual past, he ordered a full investigation. When that investigation found out that she'd had a sexual relationship with Francis Derham before her marriage, and that she'd had secret meetings with Thomas Culpepper, Henry VIII was beside himself. He wept in front of his council. He called for a sword to kill her with his own hands. He was grief-stricken. He was sorry for himself. He was angry. It's had a major impact on him. Eustace Shapley wrote that this king has wonderfully felt the case of the queen, his wife, and that he has certainly shown greater sorrow and regret at her loss than at the faults, loss or divorce of his preceding wives. Yet in May 1536, he behaved very differently. Here was his second wife, a woman he'd moved heaven and earth to be with, being investigated for allegedly betraying him with some of his closest friends, men he'd supported financially, men who'd served him for years. And yet he was reported as being out at night dining and gallivanting with ladies. Chapuis wrote, You never saw prince nor man who made greater show of his cuckold's horns or bore them more pleasantly. I leave you to imagine the cause. Now even if Henry had fallen out of love with Anne, surely he would still have been furious at her treachery and that of his friends. Of course, he wouldn't be upset if he knew that it was all untrue and that it was just a means to an end, if it meant that he could be with Jane Seymour and have a living son. If Thomas Cromwell had been behind the plot to get rid of Anne, then I think he would have brought her down in a very different way. Historian Derek Wilson wrote of how the means used to get rid of Anne were illegal and extremely cumbersome, and that they included extending the treason law in a rather unwarranted manner by asserting that adultery with the Queen constituted high treason, which it didn't. Cromwell's biographer, John Schofield, agrees, believing that Henry's involvement is proven by the lack of logic in Anne being condemned for adultery even though her marriage to the king was annulled. How could Anne have committed adultery if her marriage to the king had never actually been valid? Thomas Cromwell was an intelligent man. He was a legal genius, really. And yet the plot of 1536 was so complicated, the case was illogical and not at all watertight. The dates listed in the indictments didn't even make sense. The Queen and the men weren't even in those places on those dates. Many were impossible. But then the case didn't need to be watertight 
if the king was behind it. Nothing needed proving to him and those seeking to do the king's bidding. Historian Gareth Russell also notes the speed of events in 1536 and how the plot against Anne lacked any of Cromwell's usual slow, brilliant, relentless tactics, and that instead it was a swift, brutal mess. Henry VIII needed Anne gone. He needed her gone quickly, and he wanted her and her family's name completely blackened. This was a coup that was personal, I feel. It bears the stamp of a man who wanted to completely annihilate his wife, the wife who'd let him down, a wife and men who he thought might be laughing at him behind his back. The case bears the stamp of jealousy, fear, resentment, love gone sour and turned to hate. It doesn't bear the stamp of a rational, clinical, objective mind, the mind of Thomas Cromwell. Nobody could fall from favour without the king's say-so. Even though Cardinal Thomas Wolsey had his enemies at court, he didn't finally fall until the king willed it. In 1546, when there was a conservative plot against Thomas Cranmer, the Archbishop of Canterbury, the king stepped in and didn't let Cranmer fall. But he did warn Cranmer that false knaves could be procured to stand as witnesses against him and to bring about his condemnation. Hmm, I wonder what made the king think that. And in 1546 as well, when Gardner and Risley plotted against Catherine Parr, the king's sixth and final wife, even though the king had given permission for her arrest, when it came down to it, he wouldn't allow it, and he actually violently attacked Risley for daring to arrest his queen. Henry VIII was the man in charge, the buck has to stop with him. I once described the events of 1536 as being like the production of a play, a puppet show or a movie. Henry VIII is the man with the initial idea and the man who's funding it. Cromwell is the playwright or screenplay writer and director and everyone else is the cast or the puppets. Cromwell is pulling the strings, he directs, and everyone plays their part. The production has to please the backer and the audience, and it does. The coup is successful. The king moves on to a new wife. The Berlin name is blackened. Obstacles are removed, and the general public seems happy. Bravo, Cromwell. I hope you've enjoyed this talk. My book, The Fall of Anne Boleyn, A Countdown, goes into much more detail on Anne's fall with a day-by-day account of the events of 1536. And it was when I was researching that book and writing it that it really had an impact on me just how swift and brutal her fall was, how quickly it all happened. I've also done an online course for MedievalCourses.com called The Life of Anne Boleyn, so you may want to check that out if you're interested in her whole life. I just want to say thank you to David for inviting me to do this podcast and thank you so much to you for listening. Thank you.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.